You know that attitude, I want to talk about me, I want it all to be about me, is an attitude that most of us don't say out loud. However, by our actions, by our attitudes, and even by some of the things we say, we're actually saying, I want it to be about me. It's as if we've got this idea in the back of our minds somewhere that this whole world could literally revolve around me. Well, most of the time, this strikes me most when I'm driving. If I'm on the interstate and it's packed, then I have often thought and sometimes said out loud, Nancy will testify to this, I should have called ahead and reserved a lane. I'm serious. When I'm cruising along and doing, uh, you know, pretty good speed there and and, and I'm coming up on a truck, and then there's this car that's coming up behind me. You know, I pull over to let them go on by. Inevitably, they get up beside me and decide they want to slow down. And I get burned, and I'm going to have to hit the brakes, which I do not like to do. I brake for puppies, for school zones, for stop signs and stoplights. But while I'm on the interstate, I really don't want to brake. And then, of course, there's Walmart parking lot. I mean, you're driving in and you find the space, you've got it located, and you're just kind of maneuvering your way to get to it, and someone pulls in that space just ahead of you, and you say out loud, hey, that was my spot. It's as if we want the world to accommodate our attitude. Now, maybe I'm the only one like that, but I don't think so, because back in 1990, Nissan did a commercial, and I remember it vividly, except for the car it was advertising. I remember it vividly because of the theme that was contained. And it took me a while to find it, but I located it. The video quality is not great. But I want you to see the world according to Bob. I could afford a sports sedan. The road would belong to me. Bob, I'd have one of those multi-valve engines, independent suspension, and, of course, a spoiler on the back. If I could afford a sports sedan, life would be a cruise. Oh, it's you, Bob. Presenting the Nissan Sentra S.E.R. Because rich guys shouldn't have all the fun. The world according to Bob. Well, I'd like it to be the world according to Jimmy. You know, you roll down the window and the cop says, Oh, it's you, Jimmy. Shouldn't have stopped you. Shouldn't have bothered you. You get your own lane. No parking except for Jimmy. Well, I'd like us this morning to consider this kind of self-centered, self-seeking attitude and compare it to what Scripture teaches us. It's a little different. As a matter of fact, if we've been studying 1 Corinthians 13 and we've been talking about what, what real love is, we come to the verse now, the portion of that verse now in 13.5 that says, Love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. Some of the other translations help us to understand that maybe a little bit more. The NRSV and the ESV translate it. Love does not insist on its own way. Thistleton translates it. Love is not preoccupied with the interests of self. Very simply, Love cannot be self-centered or self-seeking. It does not see itself 
as being of utmost importance in the world. A little boy and his sister were riding a little rocking horse together. There wasn't a lot of room on the saddle. The little boy turns to his sister and said, You know, if one of us would get off this rocking horse, there'd be more room for me. <laughs> That's the kind of attitude we're talking about here. Make more room for me. Accommodate me. Let it be about me. Well, what does it mean not to be self-seeking? It, it, you see, I, I guess it's not that we're selfish all the time, right? I mean, most of the time we're generous people. But there are those times where we want to sit on the throne. We want to be the center of attention. We want the world to revolve around us. We develop this attitude that I want my way, even if it means you can't have your way. That's what it means to be self-seeking. I want my way. And really, I don't care whether you get your way or not. We can be that way. But what does God's word teach us? Well, I'd like us to consider an episode that occurred in the life of Jesus as Two of his disciples and their mama came to see Jesus. You'll find it in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. I'll put the words on the screen for you, but if you'd like to look that up in your Bibles, and I encourage you to do so, it's Matthew chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 28. Would you stand with me as we honor God's word in reading it and then taking it into not only our ears but our hearts? Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked him for a favor. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, help us to understand these words and apply them to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this is an interesting episode in the life of Jesus. I don't know James and John's mother personally. But I have met mothers like this. She would be perhaps the original helicopter parent. She was looking after her boys. She wanted to make sure that they got the top spots. 
You see, they were operating and scheming according to the the ways of the world, the way the world thinks, the way the world is organized. They had this idea that Jesus was king, and he was, but not the kind of king they were thinking. They had this idea that Jesus was going to come in and set up a kingdom, and he was, but not the kind of kingdom they were thinking. They were thinking about the power structure, and this is the way things worked back then. You had the king, and then he would have advisors. The two most important advisors would sit on his right hand, not on his hand literally, but on his right hand side, and on his left hand side. The right being a little more superior than the left, but still both of those positions had power, they had influence, they had prestige, and they had wealth associated with them. And so, James and John were probably sitting at home talking with their mom. And your mom's probably going, you boys need to go talk to Jesus about those two places. You need to get out there and start working on him. You know, butter him up a little bit. And finally, I guess because they wouldn't do it on their own, she takes them by the hand. And she takes them into Jesus' presence. And she kneels down respectfully before him. And she says, Jesus, I need a favor. I want you to have one of my sons on your right and one of mine on your left. Now, I don't care which one is which. If you'll just put one at each hand, one at each side in your kingdom, then I'd appreciate it very much. Now, Jesus says, you don't have any clue what you're talking about. And they didn't. You see, they were thinking about a glorious king with a golden crown in his head, sitting on a throne in Jerusalem with an army at his command, bringing in tribute and taxation from all over the world to make Jerusalem once again the most wealthy city. And they were seeing themselves in those fine robes, sitting beside him, helping him govern. But Jesus challenged them. He challenged their thinking of what it meant for him to be a king and for what it meant for him to set up a kingdom. And he says... I can't give you those spots. Let me add one other wrinkle here. And this might be why James and John's mother, Mrs. Zebedee, why, they, why she was so insistent to get them in front of Jesus. If you'll remember, there were 12 disciples. Among those 12, there was an inner circle of three. Peter, James, and John. Now, if there are only two positions available and you have three applicants, well, obviously, there was going to be one left out. I mean, it was pretty obvious that these were the three, that out of these three would come right and left. And so Mrs. Zebedee just wanted to ensure that if somebody was left out, it wasn't one of her boys. Now, Here's what happens. After Jesus turns them back, word gets out. I don't know if someone overheard the conversation. I don't know how it got out, but word got out to the other ten. And they were hopping mad. The audacity of James and John. Now, they don't get mad at Mama. If you'll notice, they didn't get mad at the mother. They were mad at James and John. The audacity of those two to come up and to ask for those positions of power. How dare they be so bold, so brazen as to go up there and actually ask for that. And 
Why didn't we think of it first? I mean, they're not thinking much outside that scheme of things either. They were thinking about the same kind of power. And it's at this point that Jesus teaches them a lesson about what it truly means to be great. Because they had an idea of what it meant to be great. But he teaches them a lesson. And, and we, found, we read this a few moments ago. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way of the world was not God's way. Earthly kingdoms did not operate on the same set of principles that God's kingdom would operate on. Earthly rulers used force and coercion. They exerted their power, sometimes brutally. Earthly rulers, they made sure people were kept in line. But Jesus came to take that rule book and to tear it in half and to reestablish, to renew what it meant to be a king and what it meant to have a kingdom. Greatness would no longer be defined by how many people you had serving you. Instead, it would be defined by humbly serving others. Jesus came to be the prime example of that. His service took him to the cross. He didn't have to go. He chose to go. He chose to go and to lay down his life to make the ultimate sacrifice that you might have life in him. And the places of honor in the kingdom of God are not places on Jesus' right and left where you wear fine robes and rings on your fingers, golden chains around your neck, and sit on thrones that are slightly smaller than Jesus. The places of honor in Jesus' kingdom are places of service. You remember at that last supper, as Jesus gathered with his disciples, there was no one there to wash feet. Now you think, well, that's, you know, around my house, that's not a big deal. We usually come with our shoes on. Or we put our feet under the table and nobody knows that they're a little on the dirty side. But that wasn't what's happened back then. Back then, they wore sandals. And they walked the dusty streets with all the livestock having trod up and back. You know, there was probably, it was probably maybe a lot like it was when we were down in Bate 7. You've got goats running around everywhere. You've got all kinds of animals going on. And, and if you're not careful, you may step in something. And now they all show up at dinner. Well, it would be okay, perhaps, if they put their feet under the table like it's pictured in, in the Last Supper painting that you get to see. But that's not how they ate. They ate reclining, not in a lazy boy, but propped up on one arm, eating with the other hand, meaning their feet would be near the face of the next person. Now, some of you are already grimacing at that thought. It's not a pleasant thought, but you can understand why washing feet might be an important thing to do. And so here they show up, and they've got this image again. They didn't always get it. They got this image of what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus and to be 
big in the kingdom of God. And so when they got there and there was no one to wash feet, they looked around and they said, it's not going to be me. I'm not doing that. You know what happened. Jesus got up. And he went and he fetched a basin and a towel. And he pulled off his outer garment. And he knelt at the feet of his disciples. And began to wash them. Here is the prince of heaven. On his knees. Washing dirty, stinking feet. Jesus did it as an act of love and service. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he calls us to do the very same thing. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not put itself at the center of the universe at other people's expense. And Paul writes in a letter to the church at Philippi, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Folks, when we read something like this, God's word calls us to reorient our thinking, to reevaluate our priorities, and to remove ourselves from the throne that we've set up in our lives. We are called to have the attitude of Jesus. Not to grasp at the highest rung that we can get and kick the others away so that it's all ours. Instead, we are to see ourselves as servants of God and therefore servants of others. The attitude of Jesus was a humble attitude. The attitude of Jesus was an unselfish attitude. The attitude of Jesus was one of obedience to his Father's will. The attitude of Jesus was a willingness to go above and beyond the norm, to go above and beyond the expected And to do more in the name of Jesus. So where do we go from here? Well, I'd like to share with you four applications that we can draw from this today that may help us as we seek to serve. And the first one is this. Begin to see people as Jesus does. Begin to see people as Jesus does. There's an episode that occurs in Matthew's Gospel Thus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When you look at people, what do you see? You can imagine that when the disciples saw the crowds, they may have seen a little differently than Jesus did. They saw people to be used and ruled. But when Jesus looked on them, he looked with a shepherd's heart. He saw them as harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. He saw their needs. He saw their pains. He saw their hopes that had been dashed. He saw their hurts. He saw the rejection. He saw the ridicule. 
He saw the emptiness in their souls. That's what Jesus saw when he looked at them. Now, when I say that we need to to see other people with the eyes of Jesus, we've got to get beyond just the, the tangible, physical stuff. And it can be really hard. In the last few words, a, a term has come into fashion called compassion fatigue, and I admit to sometimes having it. We meet so many people in ministry who have needs that eventually you, you kind of get hard to it. And, and, and instead of giving people the benefit of the doubt up front, you, you tend to not give them that benefit. You tend instead to be critical and harsh and judgmental. And you look at it and you say, you know, the reason you're in that situation is because of decisions that you've made. And you know what? That's right. For many people, they are right where they are because of the decisions that they've made. And sometimes they are dumb decisions. And they make them over and over and over. So what should our attitude be? Should we just reject them outright, just push them aside and say, you're not worthy of my help. You're not worthy of my time. I don't think that's the attitude we see reflected in Jesus Christ who looked at people and saw that they're harassed and helpless and they need someone to come along with a touch of grace and mercy in their lives. We need to ask God, change our hearts and change our eyes so people are no longer obstacles to keep me from getting from point A to point B. But instead, they're real people with real hurts and real hearts who really, really need Jesus. We just got a survey. We looked at a five-mile radius of Grace Fellowship. And we discovered that there are, uh, within five miles of Grace Fellowship, there's some over 5,000 people. 3,600 of those 5,000 have no church. Did you know that? 3,600 hundred of them have no church to call home. Now we can look at them and go, they don't know what they're missing. Too bad for them. Or we can look with the eyes of Jesus and say, there's a huge need, a huge number of hurting people who need to know that God loves them and has a place for them and has a plan for them. So our first application is to see people as Jesus does. Secondly, we need to begin to be willing to set aside our rights for the good of others. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read these words, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Of others. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about as he writes the Corinthian church? If you'll notice, the translator has put those, that phrase, everything is permissible, in quotes. And the reason he does that is because uh, the translator is assuming, and I, I think he's right, that this was something that was being said, repeated. It was a saying in Corinth. And here's where it came from it came from a misunderstanding of grace. I am saved by grace through faith, and it's not about my works. I can't boast about it. I can't brag about it. It's what Jesus did for me. I'm saved by grace, and I'm kept in that same grace. 
If I couldn't do anything to earn my salvation, I can't do anything to lose my salvation. I'm kept in that grace. Well, if you look at that with a very um, permissive mindset, then what you can say is, okay, now that I have my fire insurance, now that I have a home in heaven that Jesus is, is working on for me, I can live any way I want to, do anything I want to, indulge myself because I'm saved and nobody can take that away from me. And so in a sense, everything is permissible. I can do this. I can do this. It's no big deal. And what Paul says is, you know what? You're right in principle. Everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. Not everything is helpful. Everything's been, everything's permissible, but not everything is constructive. In fact, some of the things you're going to do are absolutely destructive to yourself and to others. And so instead, your attitude should be not seeking your own good, putting yourself in the center of the universe, but seeking the good of others. The third application is this. Be willing to get messy in order to serve others. Let me share a little seldom used verse from Proverbs 14, 4. Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. But from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. Now, some of you are looking at that and going, what? What's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Well, let me explain this. Here's what Solomon's trying to say. If you don't have any ox in the barn then you can keep that barn pretty clean. If you don't have that ox in the barn, that barn can be spick and span. But the moment you put an ox in the barn, you're going to have to have hay in the manger. You're going to have a mess that you're going to have to clean up because oxen are oxen, and that's what they're going to do. However, when you have the ox, there comes the harvest. When we built this building, I jokingly said that we're probably not doing our job well if we don't have footprints on the ceiling. And what I meant by that was not that we need to just be destructive with the building. What I meant by that is when you have people in the building, children, teenagers, churched and unchurched, stuff gets broken, stuff gets dirty, stuff gets worn out because it's used. But I want to tell you right now, we did not build this building to become a monument. This building was never intended to be an idol. It was always intended from the very outset, before the first spade of dirt was turned over, this building was intended to be a tool in the hands of God, to be used to reach a community and to equip a body of believers. And I could not have been more thrilled this week to see all these chairs against the wall. Tents pitched in here. If you didn't see it, you missed it. Tents pitched in here. Rocks piled up. And the kids learning Bible truth that's going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. I couldn't have been more thrilled. Now, I've been in churches in the past If we tried to do something like that, I better start getting my resume ready. I am so thrilled 
that here we understand that if they're going to have they're going to be ox in the barn there's going to be a mess but it's not just about the building some of you know this firsthand because uh, you have engaged in helping and connecting with other people who are outside the life of the church sometimes inside the life of the church but whose lives are a royal mess there is no way to help people if you're not willing to get messy yourself. I would not want a swim instructor who sat in a lounge chair beside the pool trying to teach me to swim. If I'm going to teach somebody to swim, I need to be in the pool with them. If you are going to reach people where they are, you're going to have to go to where they are. Grace Fellowship is not a place. I like the old Western movies. My dad loved them. Although these pointy boots are a little bit uncomfortable. They're borrowed. I like the Western movies. But, but you'll remember, uh, Grandma or Mom would come out on the porch and she'd have that little triangle doodad and she'd get her little piece of metal and start ringing it. Come and get it! They'd all come to eat. I think a lot of people view church like that. All we got to do is build a building. Get us a big chime to go outside and yell, come and get it. But Jesus said, go and make disciples. Not come and get it. And the fourth application that we can get, derive from this this morning to help us is to pray for wisdom and discernment as we humbly serve others. Pray for wisdom and discernment. James, one of my favorite books in the Bible, James chapter 1, we read, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to him. What that means is God knows that you don't know. Therefore, he's not going to put you down if you come and say, God, I'm clueless. Instead, that's what he's looking for. An attitude that comes and says, God, I don't have all the answers, but I know you do. Would you share them with me? And what James tells us is God is faithful to do that. Now, he may not do it on your timetable, but he will do it. Now, when we are dealing with hurting people, when we are dealing with broken people, when we're dealing with messy people, we need discernment. We don't need to simply put a Band-Aid on their cancer. We need to find out what the root of their issue is and begin to minister to them in Jesus' name at the root of their issue. And we need to hold them accountable. We need to say, we will do this, but you must do this. And if you do this, then we will be a faithful partner for you. But we will not become codependent with you. We will not continue to support you in this lifestyle. If you choose to come out, if you choose to change, you have a partner in Grace Fellowship. But don't ask us to support you as you nosedive your life into the ground. We're not doing that. Now, I want to say one thing here. I want, I want to be clear because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. And uh, Robert Motley, who is 
I tell you what, I could not have a better partner as a deacon working with benevolence than, than Bob. He and I both had the same heart on this. When we do ministry with broken people, from time to time, we're going to get burned. It's happening. It's going to happen. It has happened. It will happen. But when I stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords, who knelt himself down to wash the feet of his disciples, who went to the cross and died a sacrificial death in my place, I want to be able to tell him that I erred on the side of mercy and grace. And I did not turn away the hurting.